Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, the host of this podcast, and I'm so excited to have you here. A bit about me, I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur and investor who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. The Dear 20-something podcast started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful changemakers they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts, we're here to humanize the whole thing. You'll hear from successful trailblazers who will share the highs and lows of their 20s, and you'll also get words of wisdom from some experts who will speak on a certain topic relevant for 20-somethings. And then sometimes it'll just be me, on the mic, hosting an episode where I share recent reflection or story from my own life, as I too am navigating this wild decade. We're so happy to have you here. Let's get started. Today on the show, I am so excited to be chatting with Yaz Movin. Yasmin has over a decade of experience managing and running marketing, communications, and investor relations for both publicly traded and emerging private technology companies. As the CMO of Pipe, she leads all marketing, communications, partnerships, and investor relations efforts, helping build one of the fastest growing fintechs in history and establishing recurring revenue as a new asset class. Prior to joining Pipe, she was one of the first employees at Fair.com, the car subscription app spearheading investor relations, communications, and marketing, and raising over $1.4 billion in debt and $500 million in equity. Before Fair, Yaz was working in marketing communications and strategic partnerships for Sotheby's, True Car, and the LA Tourism Board, where she led branding, growth marketing, communications, and capital raising. Yaz has a passion for fintech and financial literacy and holds a BA from the University of Southern California. Hi, Don. I can't wait to chat with her and share a story with you now on Dear 20-something. Please welcome Yaz Movin. How's it going? Hi, doing well. Thanks for having me. Of course. Excited to have you here. It's like bright and early. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from San Francisco. Ooh, okay. So, you know, early for you too. We're doing this 8 a.m. How are we doing this morning? You know, we're doing okay. Actually, I was in London two days ago, so I still think I'm on London time. So I think I was up at 3 a.m. today, so I'm really prepared. Yeah, you're really prepared. You're like in lunchtime right now. Why were you in London? That's so exciting. We had a offsite there. So we brought together our design, our marketing, and our sales teams. And we got together in London for a week. We're fully remote teams. So we have to sort of do these offsites where we get to come together and jam for a week at a time. And it's, it's amazing. So yeah, got to see my team, got a little bit of a taste of London, and then came back to San Francisco to meet with our CEO and a few folks here. Amazing. Oh, that's such a good spot for an offsite too, like to make it international. I feel like it's so easy. I know you're all remote, so you might have some folks that live in Europe, but it's so nice to really go somewhere. Like a lot of the offsites that I've done tend to just be somewhere pretty in California. And it doesn't feel as much like an offsite. It feels like a nice road trip. That's so awesome. And I think London was amazing because I think I think half the team hadn't even been to London. So it was pretty incredible. So I, it was nice. We did a little bit of sightseeing. We did, I don't know, I think we did the F1 arcade, which was a pretty fun. <laughs> we did a lot of good things, but we got a ton of work in, which was nice. Being a few hours before ahead of the rest of the team made it a lot easier for us to get a lot done before we had to take meetings and, you know, sort of run the business, but then also got to spend, you know, some quality time at night together. It was a really, really amazing experience. Oh, that's awesome. It's always that tricky balance between like, are we having enough fun and also getting enough done because it's so convenient. We're all right here. Like you want to make sure you're doing a bit of both. I don't have the perfect ratio down, but you know, it's like one of those things. And then you also want to do like- I think my team does a better job of that. I think my team is like, yes, okay, we have to stop now. I'm like, oh, but the whiteboarding is so much fun. So. Yeah. There's a reason you're the CMO. There's a reason you went that route. 
That's not surprising. Okay, so before we dive into like, you know, your journey to Pipe, which is where you are now, I like to start every show with a bit of like a fun question. You can take it as serious as you want or as light as you want. It is very much up to you. So what is something new that you learned in this past week that you want to share with our listeners? Well, I do have this fun fact Twitter handle I follow. And the fun fact today, maybe ironically, is that women were able to vote for the first time in Wyoming in like 1869. And I I didn't know that. And so I thought that was pretty incredible. That is incredible. There was like a small town or something where they were on a council or something? Yeah, they allowed women to vote. Yeah, where they allowed women to vote. And I thought that was so cool because we always think like the 1920s, right? And you think this big movement. But I thought that was pretty incredible. And I said, well, what a good timing. <laughs> it's really interesting. I like it. And isn't today internet, I mean, we're recording this before this is going to air, but like I think today's International Women's Day. Yeah, I think so. Or the week is. And I think or it the was week just, is. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, it was like very timely. I like it. Okay. I also, you got to send me this handle. I love fun facts. I have this quote thing that comes up every day because I'm like a quotes person. So every morning I open my thing and I have a new quote. And so it's like a similar but different. I have a book I read every morning that's called The Daily Stoic. And it's Oh yeah, about- Ryan Holiday. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I, I, I'm the second time I'm reading it because I think you got to reread books to actually like let things stick, you know, and actually find impact. And every time you read it, you're in a different place in your life, right? So it, it can it can mean something totally different. So I love doing that too. I love quotes. That's really awesome. So you actually read it every morning. Like, you know, today you woke up and you read what's today's quote or thing from Ryan Holiday? I think the it wasn't a quote, but it was sort of this idea of being more present, but not being self-sabotaging with your thoughts so that your thoughts don't actually drive your decisions and that you can be more present and make decisions, you know, through what's actually happening in front of you today versus what your subconscious thinks about, which is kind of cool. This is very helpful. Okay. So we're going to follow this fun fact Twitter handle and we're going to get this book. I tried doing the once a day, five questions a day thing. Do you know what I'm talking about? Five minute journal. Yes. Yeah. And it was just, it was too much. It it felt like it was overwhelming. I feel like doing an exercise every day is maybe harder, but reading something is a bit easier because I can just kind of like do it. And what he did so well was make it so quick and easy and consumable. And so nothing is more than like a half a page long. So I end up highlighting the whole page, I think, every time. But you know what? It's fine. However, (laughs) you know, but I think it's, it's just really something you can take in very easily and sort of let it stick with you throughout the day. I think it's great. I love it. Well, thanks for, you know, giving us a peek inside your morning routine. Let's get into it. So you obviously went to USC, fight on. We have that in common. Love it. But I want to know, like, where did you grow up and what was sort of the like pre-USC story of Yaz? I am, like I said, I'm Persian. So both of my parents are immigrants. They came here to go to school because a lot of, of, of Persians at the time came to Western countries to get educated. And then they got stuck here because of the revolution. And so my parents actually met in Colorado. They went to the University of Denver in Boulder and they met in Colorado. And so I ended up growing up in Colorado. And so I'm from Denver and just had one of the most amazing experiences growing up there. was a big swimmer. So I thought I was going to go and swim at UCLA. An injury did not help me get through that, unfortunately. And so instead, 
I decided to go to USC. <laughs> so I ended up at uh, USC, which unbiasedly or maybe biasedly, I'm super happy that that's where I ended up because I think it's a big reason why I am where I am today. I was exposed to a lot of things that I don't think I would have been exposed to if I didn't have my experience at USC, whether that's my friends, my professors, the culture of Los Angeles. I owe a lot to that experience. And so, yeah, I grew up in the mountains of Colorado and then ended up in the big city of LA. I love it. Well, first of all, the mountains of Colorado and, and specifically, you know, like the Denver area, I don't know if there are mountains in Denver, but you can see lots of mountains in Denver. You can see them. Yes, very cool. You can see them. Absolutely beautiful. Are you like a big nature person now? Do you, I mean, because LA, we're lucky, right? We've got like the beach, we've got hiking trails and some mountains, we've got desert not too far. Do you, are you a big nature person? So you're actually going to laugh. I'm act- I can't ski, I can't snowboard, and I don't love the nature. I am the antithesis of Colorado. <laughs> I think... That's why I ended up going to LA and I spent a lot of time in New York and San Francisco, but I do go in Colorado. But there's something amazing about being in Colorado that you naturally just gravitate to the outdoors. But I wouldn't say that I'm outdoorsy. And I think that, and, and maybe that's controversial. I'm just a really bad Colorado resident. I just appreciate the honesty. You know, I think it's similar, actually, I'll say to Phoenix. Like my sister now lives in Phoenix and they've got beautiful mountains and very close to them is like Sedona and all these. She always goes to these like camping trips or whatever. And I just feel like being in those areas, it makes you more outdoorsy. But when you're in a city, there's just so much to do. Like I'd rather go to a cool movie premiere. Like I'd rather go to a cool new restaurant. Totally. It's, it's just, you end up by default doing something totally different. But when you go, whenever I go to Colorado and whenever I'm home, I just feel so grounded and I feel like I'm allowed to take a beat, which is incredible. And I think I took for granted probably early on in my life, but really appreciate it now. But you know, if you'd like to have a really good apres ski moment, I'm there with you. Let's do it. I love it. I am unfortunately quite similar. I think it's just, it's also how you're raised a little bit. Like even if you grew up in Denver, if your parents didn't like love skiing or like love snowboarding, like it just like wasn't a thing. And then it's almost like you're too old to really get into it. And I, I don't know that I really want to, like I would try it a little, but I'm not feeling like it's like a calling. I don't know if you feel that way, but. Yeah. I mean, not to get dark, but I, (laughs) my uncle actually got into a pretty bad ski accident with my dad. My dad was an incredible skier, kind of put us on skis really early on in life. And then they were together up during Christmas and got in a pretty bad ski accident and it it affected my dad in a, a big way. So he actually pulled us from skiing in that way. And then I think I had three of my friends lose parents in ski accidents. It was very common actually in Colorado through middle school and high school, not to get dark, like I said. But so it was sort of like, it was sort of, are we going to choose to go and do this and put yourself, because it can be dangerous, but it's such a beautiful sport. It's so wonderful to do. And as an adult, I've definitely picked it up here and there, but I think it was sort of circumstance that ended up not making me a big skier and snowboarder. And it just makes you think in a different way, but it's still an incredible thing. And we go up to the mountains all the time and I really enjoy it. But yeah, it just didn't become a part of our DNA. Okay. You know, what's so weird. I'm just having this epiphany while you're chatting of course, that's horrible about your uncle and, and all these folks who passed. I'm realizing the same thing happened with my mom and my grandfather. They're both still alive, but they had really each both bad accidents, like broke bones that hurt them for a long time. And now I'm kind of realizing that like, oh, that was probably why. It's actually very dangerous. Yeah. 
exactly. Because otherwise, like it's a beautiful sport, but it can be very dangerous. And my, my dad would always say, you know, it's a choice. It's a choice to ski. You know, it's a choice to be in these scenarios. And so he just became really risk first around it. And so as we're de- default, we just didn't do that, right? My mom loved a good road trip. So we would, try, so we would drive through the mountains and do all of those things. But yeah, we just didn't ski. Wow. That's wild. And I, it's weird, the parallels. Now that you're saying it, I didn't think about it that way, but you're right. It's if you hurt yourself, it's close. It's more of a, unfortunately. It's subconscious. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you just don't want to do it again. Wow. Okay. Whoa, that was wild. Okay. So let's get into the, the UCLA of it. So you were a good swimmer. Something happened. Why UCLA for swimming? And like, was there a career piece attached to UCLA that you had in mind? Or was it really just like, I want to swim. UCLA is the best place to do it. And then you ended up not going. But like, what was the decision around UCLA and and what happened with the swimming? UCLA had one of the best swimming programs when I was going through high school. And I actually transferred high school so that I could get into a D1 swimming program. And then I, I injured my shoulder. And so like many athletes, I made a choice on a school based on the program itself, not necessarily the school's academics or my academic path, right? And so I went through this little bit of a identity crisis, right? When I was no longer sort of thinking about, do I swim in the morning and at night? Do I train? And then do I do school? And so I had this moment where I had to figure out, okay, where do I want to go how do I pivot my thinking? And for a good year, I would say my first freshman year, I really thought I could come back. And swimming's an endurance sport. It takes a lot to actually get to a place where you're at that level. And then to take time off and rehab, it's a whole nother sort of cycle. And as much as and we all know, college sports are really intense and they expect a certain level. And so at some point, you're sort of grappling between, okay, what's best for my life moving forward versus who I am today. And so I had to make that decision, but I always knew I wanted to go to LA. I had extended family from there. I was technically born in LA, but moved to Colorado when I was really young. And so I always knew I wanted to go back to Los Angeles, but UCLA was just more well-known out of state. USC didn't have as much of a stronghold when I was about to go to college as UCLA or the UC system did. I like to say that I'm a recession baby. So I, I, I went to school right when the recession hit. And going to a UC school, they actually pulled a lot of funding for out-of-state kids at that time. And so it was hard to get in. It was hard to even think about paying for out-of-state. And then you'll say, well, then you went to USC, which is a private school more expensive. But what people don't realize a lot of the times is private schools are well-funded and they have a lot of programs, right? And you're almost, you think you're not allowed right, to go there if you are, are not as privileged as most. And I, like I said, come from a, an immigrant family, had just sort of was middle class and really got hit hard by the recession. And so I had to go some, I, you know, I remember going to USC and I remember my parents paying full in full my first year. And then when the recession hit, my mom said, you got to figure it out. And so the best thing that USC gave me, it's probably my first experience fundraising, to be honest, was that I had to go and figure out how I was going to pay for school. And it was incredible. The amount of endowments that were there, the amount of grants, the amount of scholarships, you know, state funding that I still qualified for. I think I ended up walking out of USC with only about 20 grand in loans, which is pretty incredible. And it was my first experience of really just feeling like a community came together 
as long as I wanted to put in the work to find a way for me to make it through school. And so it was an amazing experience. And to be honest, I just didn't know about USC while I was in Colorado. And so it was kind of like meant to be. You're also not going to believe the similarities here, but I did the, the exact same thing. This is what I tell people exactly what you just said, and I'm going to send them to this podcast clip. What people don't realize about some of these private schools is that if you just put in the work and submit the essays and network and meet the people, they will give you money. Like they will give you scholarships. And the longer you're there, the more people you meet, the more scholarships you'll get. So like what you got your sophomore year will be different than your senior year in that it goes up. It's incredible. These networks that they build, absolutely incredible. But the biggest hurdle I think you have if you don't come from that level of privilege or access, right? Is that you're intimidated and that the system tells you you're not allowed. But the moment you go there and you show that you deserve a seat at that table and that you want a seat at that table, this system is actually made to hopefully take you in as long as they are have the funding to do so, right? And so I was really lucky. But I would say the biggest hole is how much they don't educate people about it, right? I definitely had to go looking. I remember at the time, (laughs) nothing was really digitized. So there was this big book in the financial aid office, and I was like going through all of the different opportunities and endowments and scholarships that were available. And so I think to your point, a lot of folks just don't know And I think that universities can do a better job of promoting it, but talking about it, I think spreading the knowledge about it, it will be more impactful. I agree. And I think it's it's weeding out the people that are going to do the work. So if you're listening to this right now and you like are in college or maybe you're about to go to college, spend the time to go try to find the money because it is there. It will be there. I remember, so my sister actually went to UCLA, which is kind of funny. And there were pockets of money there too. It was significantly less like exactly like what Yaz was saying, like it's, it pales in comparison. But like, if you're listening to this, just spend the time. And unlike Yaz's experience where it was all in a book, a lot of stuff is digitized now. You can just look on their website. So that's incredible. Good for you. Go to the financial aid office and press them. Make them give you the access. It's a little bit of, they're busy. They've got a lot going on. But make sure that you're seen. You know, that was one thing I, I showed up every week to the financial aid office. I was going to stay at USC as far as I was concerned. And I was not going to walk out completely in debt where I couldn't function, right? And so it was long hours and long nights keeping my GPA up continuously. I, I took a job on campus and a job off campus. I would go into the financial aid office and figure out how best I could stay. And I still had an amazing social experience in education. So I think it's how much work you want to put into it hopefully you'll get out. I absolutely love that. And I'm I'm respecting the hustle big time. So walk me through like at this point where your head is from a career standpoint. And like, did it change when you got to USC? And I say that because there's a lot of people I, I met at USC where before they went, they like had an idea of what they wanted to do. And then the beauty of USC too, is they really help guide you in the right direction. Like there's just so much passion and so many interesting classes that you can kind of figure it out. And usually it changes. So like, what was the career thought at this time? What, what were you studying and what were you liking? So not to always go back to my Persian heritage, but I think most of the time you're told you can be a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer. And so I said, okay, well, I, I really don't love blood. So can't be a doctor. And on the engineering side, you know, funny enough, math was a bane of my existence at the time. So I was like, okay, I'm going to have to become a, a, a lawyer. 
And so I went and studied political science and pre-law. But again, being impacted by the financial downturn at the time, actually thinking about how I was going to fund my way through law school on top of figuring how to fund my way through undergrad was just not even something I could fathom. It was really hard. So I was also sort of in a headspace of like what I could do to get through college to get the best sort of education to then go and get a job and not only provide for myself, but also help um, my family. And so I pivoted into, I stayed in political science, finished that pretty early. And then I had about 18 months left where I then took a minor in communications. And I probably like every millennial young girl at the time wanted to be double worth Prada (laughs) and thought I would do it. And so I really doubled down on communications and writing and advertising. And so my first job out of college actually was in a magazine. And I would work in a magazine late at night or all day, excuse me. And then I would take classes late at night. And one of the amazing things you just mentioned about USC was a lot of the professors, once you got sort of later in your your time there, were actual CEOs of companies. I think the editor-in-chief of the LA Times at one point was one of my professors. It was crazy, right? But there were these these three-hour block classes at night. So it allowed you to work during the day. And so I took my first job at a magazine, I think my junior year of college, and then was taking a lot of these classes at night. But it was incredible because everything I was learning at night, I would then apply during the day and kind of already had a job before I graduated and moved to the big city, moved to New York before even visiting it to go and, and live this dream to become Devil Wars Pro, <laughs> which was funny. And so I definitely didn't become a lawyer, a doctor or an engineer. <laughs> I love it. But that's the immigrant way, right? Like, you know, you need to work hard. That's also the underlying I've learned. The doctor, lawyer, engineer is just what they knew working hard was. You've obviously worked so hard in the ways that make sense for you. I think that that was like what they were trying to say. A hundred percent. And I don't think like my mom or my dad even know that like working in a magazine was a job, right? I think there's like, there's this huge like sort of cultural gap, right? In America, you have such an amazing opportunity to do so many different things. And even now, I never thought I could work in tech. I didn't even know what venture capital was. Crazy enough, I went to school with some of the most epic venture capitalists today, right? And so you sit back and go, well, how did they know and you didn't? But there's always sort of like this gap, right? Between how much knowledge maybe the person next to you has versus what you have. And so a big part of this is, is you kind of just have to hustle your way through to hopefully get the access to that knowledge and then be able to sort of pave your way. But the, the beauty of it is, is that you can kind of be anything you want to be as long as you sort of put your mind to it and continue to sort of push through. But there are a lot of hurdles for folks um, that don't exist for others. And so I think finding your own path is the most important. Yeah. I think it also makes you a lot more interesting when you get there. And like, that's the thing I tell people too, is like, I'll be honest, like you working for a magazine and all the other interesting kind of windy path stuff you did makes you a lot more interesting than the person who like knew about it out the gate, had the venture capital job lined up at 20, you know? Right. No, I think, I think what's amazing though, at least in what I do today, is by having sort of different paths and different types of jobs, it gives me a different perspective, right? And then there's folks who are in the room who are deep experts in what they do. And so bring someone like myself and bring the expert in the room and we're probably quite a dynamic duo, right? And so I think 
if you want to be the academic or you want to be the person who knows the expert and certain expertise in the best way possible, there's hopefully you find the yin to your yang, who is someone who's sort of seen a lot other a lot of other things and maybe is good at a plethora of things. But when you come together, it's pretty amazing. And I, so I think there is sort of this divide in our society around, oh, if you are if in one specific role or you do, you don't, or you've done a m- multiple things, like you have nothing in common. And I actually think it's quite the opposite. I think if you can come together and have all these sort of different backgrounds, it's actually quite interesting, right? And you probably build some incredible companies. Well, I think we have and built some incredible companies and experiences for others. And I think anyone who's one in the same all the time, becomes just boring. You and me both. I could not agree more. So once you get to the magazine, do we like the magazine? Is it Devil Wears Prada is what we thought it would be? And then at what point do we transition into tech? Because I know you've had since a couple pretty big jobs in tech. What was that transition like too? So moving to New York was a lot and never ever visiting or living there or doing any of that. So that was one's culture shock. And then going into a magazine was another culture shock. And it was funny, it was a lot like the movies, but then a lot wasn't like the movie. So it was really interesting. <laughs> and and what you what I think I experienced was that mascaras and blow jars don't pay your bills. <laughs> and it was sort of this glamorous lifestyle that didn't fund an even basic lifestyle unless you were t- at the very, very top. And even then, what I also realized was that I was entering magazines during the digital revolution and they were starting to change. And so the things that you did see maybe in the movies or experience when I was working in college, those were sort of the heydays of the time, right? Print advertising was changing. Funding was changing who was seen as a celebrity. It was no longer just sort of ruby stars and singers, right? It was, it was actually tech CEOs and, you know, entrepreneurs. And so this, there was this massive change in reality stars, right? So this massive sort of change. And I think I always like to say I grew up in the digital revolution of the magazine world because that was the first time I saw the digital world disrupt an entire category. It was completely disrupted. There was no longer you're going to read a magazine and physically hold it at scale, right? You had to have a digital presence. You had to speak to your customers on, on social media. It was it was incredible. So I think I was sort of exposed to my first taste of tech when I was actually at magazines. I lasted maybe 10 months in New York City before I moved back to LA and and because I couldn't afford it, right? I lived in a shoebox, I think in Alphabet City. Nine cents pizza was my breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I think I would go to events to eat the hors d'oeuvres just so I could make it through. <laughs> it was crazy. It was real, right? And I, I but the the types of people I met, the things that I learned along the way, you know, I think being, you know, able to manage my social life as well as my work, it was a big part of how you functioned in the magazine world. And the hustle was quite, there was nothing quite like it. So it was incredible, but definitely couldn't afford it. And so I moved back to LA and I got a job at the LA Tourism Board. And that's when I was first exposed to tech. And People will say, at a government entity, you were exposed to tech. And, and what's, what's funny is that it was because at the time, there was a small startup called Uber. And they came knocking because they were launching in the LA market. And they wanted to team up with uh, Restaurant Week. And we managed Restaurant Week because we were the marketing arm of 
LA City or LA County. And it was pretty incredible because at the time, everyone was so anti Uber, Lyft, and at the time, Sidecar. I don't know if you guys remember Sidecar, but it was the three of them at the time. And what was absolutely incredible was that it was the first time I had met a bunch of folks inside of a tech company that weren't engineers. I thought you had to be an engineer to work inside of tech. I didn't know that you there were marketing folks and you know sales folks and that there's finance folks and there's business and data science. Like I had no idea. And so I had met, you know, that team, helped them sort of launch in the LA market, did one of the biggest campaigns with them and became very close with them. And then they received a cease and desist letter by the Transportation Committee of LA. And I just felt so passionate about the fact that we needed to have a way for, for visitors to get around. And LA was sort of losing against public transport in other major cities, right? The metro and the light rail wasn't up to speed at that time. We taxi cars were tough to get and not necessarily a pleasant experience. And so I just said, there's got to be a better way and worked with the CEO and a few of the ride-sharing companies and really worked to build this sort of thesis around how LA really needed ride-sharing as a separate entity to taxis. And, and that's what we did. And so it was pretty amazing to see that. And Uber, I think, was one, I think LA was one of its largest markets even when they went public still to this day. So, you know, it was a huge sort of impact that we drove there. And I just said, man, I wonder if I could do this all the time where I put my mind to something and I see it come to fruition and I don't have to wait months and years and a lot of time. And I just was so electrified by it. I also just love the fact that everyone was my age and everyone was diverse and everyone had this different sort of viewpoint. And I just was absolutely in awe of it. So I was sort of put my head down and said, I got to find something that's similar. And I had a friend at the time working at a company called True Car. And he introduced me over there. And I moved over to True Car right after they went public and started my journey in tech and in marketing and comms there. Unreal. I think once you get a taste of it, like you said, it's irresistible. Uh, You can't stop. Because they're, they're so smart. They're young. They're diverse. They're trying to change the world. And once you do like a like one marketing campaign or one restaurant week, you can see how also your work can actually impact something in the real world. Like I find that that's really the people who want to be in tech want to see that their work and their time has an impact in the world. Not just a deck that people forget about or not just like consulting some folks that maybe they listen, maybe they don't. What It's like the real world impact, like you keep saying you can't get enough. And now then you're like, okay, well, now I got to do this. And you got to do it in the way that you're going to do it, which is the marketing side, right? Which is like, I think such an important point you're saying for everyone that's listening to like, if you want to work in tech, you can totally do it if you're like an amazing writer. And like you have a thesis on like, you know, how you can share something like ride sharing to people who maybe don't know about it, which is marketing. So I love that. And then, so you did True Car, Fair.com, Pipe. You actually skipped one. I did True Car and then I did Sotheby's, which was crazy, right? So I thought, okay, and I had a moment of panic. So I was in tech. The CEO decides to move on at True Car and sort of felt like it was going more in a corporate direction. And I said, well, gosh, if I'm going to be at a corporate company, I'm going to go to a big corporate company. Maybe I need that on my resume, right? Which I think in your 20s, you really still are grappling with this fact of like, does my resume matter? 
what is on my resume? Who do I know? What, you know, how are people going to perceive me? And so I was sort of in this headspace of like, do I need to go into a company that's really well known? And so I got poached by Sotheby's, the auction house, and they were opening up a, a West Coast division. And I became the assistant vice president of, of, of North and South America. And I think I was the youngest to do so at the time. And I think one of the most amazing experiences because I learned what I didn't want through that experience. And I think that's just as important as knowing what you do want. A lot of the times we all really focus on where do we want to be, sort of our dreams and our goals, right? But you need to know what you don't want to get closer to those dreams and those goals. And so a lot of the times things can sort of they can sort of come into your head and take you off your path. And so if you don't experience those things to then know what path you actually want to take, it's really hard to commit to what you really want to do for your forever job, right? And so for me, I'm always so thankful for the people that I met at Sotheby's, who are some of my closest friends today, confidants, whether that's the SVP of of, of Preferred, uh, the CMO, who ended up, you know, we helped Sotheby's come a private it was a public company when I joined, and then they helped to come private, which is an incredible experience to watch from a capital markets function, getting to watch a company that was so not touched by the digital world. People were still working in black books with their clients, like black little like notebooks. It's crazy. This is like 2015. Like You're like, what's going on, right? They did, I think they sent seven emails to one client through like a broken CRM. They didn't even have a CRM system. It was mind-blowing to me coming from then tech. And so what I did put really a clarity on for me was that I belonged in tech, right? And that the impact I was going to drive had to be on a daily basis. I enjoyed driving impact on a daily basis. And I couldn't do that where I was at that time. But I, I, I loved my experience I think Sotheby's was very foundational for me. I met some incredible people. And I learned a level of people management and empathy for sort of different folks within an organization that I, I don't think I would have ever been exposed to if I just took the straight tech route. I think it's also so important that when you have experiences that are so different that you find those silver linings. Like everything you're telling me about taught you what you didn't want. You met amazing friends. Like you learned people management. Like even just the way you're talking about it now is how I, I think a lot of people need to look back on experiences that maybe aren't like the perfect fit and think about like, what are the three biggest things you gained from it? Because everything is a learning experience. And like you said, it can be just as valuable, just as valuable. And I think always remember to leave with grace and respect because you never know when you're going to run into the same person or cross paths with people again. And so just always know that there is a reason why you went there and a reason why it was a part of your journey. And a lot of the times it's to show you what you don't want to do. And so I think that's really incredible. And I also think if I went to a Sotheby's today, I would be a totally different human. I would know how to manage it in a completely different way. And in my 20s, I just really didn't know how to really drive impact there. And so I'm really grateful for that experience for that reason. But yeah, so after Sotheby's, I get a call from actually the founder, um, Trucar, who left. And he goes, I started a new company. I I think it was a time $15 million seed round, which was a big round at the time. And he said, I want you to come and be our first hire in, in marketing. And so I went there, took the leap. I thought, okay, I think I was 25 at the time. And I was like, oh, I can do this still. 
Like I can still take this jump, right? And so I joined as a director of marketing. We launched the app about a year later in the app store. It's doing well. And then he says, yes, we got to raise money. I said, okay. I had no idea what that meant or the context of what that means in startups, right? I had worked at more scaled startups or had exposure to startups once they, you know, sort of being on the outside, but not on the inside of what it was like. And I said, okay, that's great. And he, he said, so yeah, there's this, this, there's this thing called the Goldman Sachs conference. I'm going to need you to get us in. I, I didn't even know what Goldman Sachs was at the time. <laughs> that's how green we were here. Okay. So, so the whole time I'm like, okay, but I, I had a leg up. This is a CEO and a founder who had taken a company public through Goldman Sachs. It sold his previous company before that. And he was a veteran founder. And so I was able to utilize, you know, his gravitas to get into the room. And, and I remember I thought there were these uh, tech conferences and they, they, they give you like, you know, three or four slots or they give you 12 slots, but they hope you fill three to four to meet with a few investors. I had no idea I filled the whole slots up. And I, and I very similar and I guess maybe this is funny how movies have had an effect on me. And I think it's very common in immigrant culture. This is how you think of the American dream, right? You watch these movies and you think you want to be that. And so I remember the pursuit of happiness. And I remember that Will Smith decided to start from the back of the sheet instead of the front of the sheet. And so I did the exact same thing. And I remember I had teed up all of these meetings with GPs. And I had no idea what a GP was at the time. So we walk into this room and everyone goes, are you Yasmin? And I said, yes. And I said, am I in trouble? And I said, no, this is an incredible roster. (laughs) Who are you? And I said, oh no, I'm just here to coordinate, right? Because again, I didn't know my value. I didn't know what I was doing. And so I sit at this table with the founder and CEO at the time of, of FAIR and Scott starts pitching this company. And as he's pitching our company to some of the top VCs and, and private equity GPs in the world, he, you know, they would ask questions about the customer. And I was the director of marketing. I knew the retention rates. I knew the personas, right? And so we started to tag team in this conversation. And it was pretty incredible. And I remember just feeling so exhausted after, but still so fulfilled, right? I was like, man, that was pretty incredible. I hope I did okay. And I remember we get back on Monday. We're in LA. He calls me into the conference room. I go, this is it. I bombed it. I'm out. <laughs> of course <laughs> you didn't. On? Come on. <laughs> so I just was panicked and I sit down and he goes, hey, yes. So how do you think New York went? And I said, I think it went okay. And he said, yeah, I think it went more than okay. And I said, okay. He said, there's this thing called investor relations. And I said, what's that? Sounds like finance. <laughs> he goes, yeah, but there's this component that is people related. And there is this level where people need to communicate and connect and you need to be able to read body language and understand what they're asking for. And you're just, you had this incredible connection with almost every single investor that came to our table. And I said, well, I really love what we do and what we're building because to me, it was, it was something that was going to change how anyone got access to a car and how anyone could afford a car. And to me, that was incredible because it's very hard right? A lot of folks can't get cars, right? And it's how you get around and it's how you get to your job. It's how you, you feed your family. And so I was just so passionate about it. I thought I was just doing my job. And he said, no, well, it's, it's, it's a rare thing. And I said, okay. He's like, so I'd like for you to take this role because, you know, we need to raise capital and this role is really important. I said, okay, well, I really want to be a CMO and I feel like you're taking me off my path. <laughs> and he sort of looked at me and he said, 
yeah, sometimes people see something in you and that you don't see in yourself. So I'm going to ask you to trust me. And then he said, secondly, there is no company for you to market if there's no capital for you to deploy. Which (laughs) wiser words have never been spoken. (laughs) So touche. Right. And so I sort of didn't have a choice, but what an incredible experience, right? So next day I move into transition into this master relation role. Three weeks later, we raise $50 million. Six weeks after that, we acquire Uber's exchange leasing business where we use a debt facility, a 10% of equity. And we raised another equity round on top of that, raised another $50 million. We raised, and then we basically fed off that portfolio. We're $50 million in the black, the first quarter, second quarter of two years of being in business and raised another $250 million. $2 billion valuation right after that from the likes of W, Mercedes, Siemens, SoftBank, you know, everyone under the sun you can imagine. And it was incredible. So I went from someone who had no idea about this world, who thought I was not worthy to be in the room, to being in the room with some of the most incredible, thoughtful, badass investors and founders I think I've ever seen. And I also went from someone who had never raised a dollar in my life to by the end of sort of 18 month run had raised over $2 billion before I was 30. It was an incredible experience. And it made me just sort of realize what was so important to me, right? And it was really just the ability to be in the room, to learn, to be able to grow and then share that knowledge with others around me and to build just a really impactful business. And so that's what FAIR really was for me. And then I met Harry and Josh, who are the founders of Pipe at FAIR, because we actually acquired their last company. And so when they moved on, I moved on, they called me and said, hey, we're starting a company, we want you to join. And while we know you're good at fundraising and you know this space really well, we kind of don't need that today. But we're building this incredible marketplace where institutional investors and founders are going to come together and get funded and sort of build this ecosystem where founders don't have to dilute themselves along the way while they're growing their business, right? So it'll be sort of like a working capital line. And it was like they were speaking my language. And they said, there's, but there's this, this thing where we really just need, we need an understanding around marketing. How do we speak to both sides of this marketplace? How do we speak to the world? How do we tell our story? And so full circle moment, because if you remember, I said, Scott, you're taking me off my path. I want to be a CMO. And guess what? Today, I would not have been a qualified CMO for this company if I hadn't raised institutional capital, both debt and equity. If I didn't understand what cap table makeups would look like or structured deals or what a convertible note was or a safe or a preferred round or a secondary, right? I was so thankful of my journey because it took me to this place that I am today, which is allows me to now empower founders and business owners to have the knowledge and the sort of connectivity to the institutional private and and public capital markets. And it's pretty incredible. It was a full circle moment. And I think you have to just trust your journey. That's all I can say that my, my journey, I think I had six, seven jobs before I turned 30 and it was every single one of them was impactful and every single human I met along the way. And I'm just very lucky. A lot of men put me in a room 
where 99% of the time I was the only female. And the youngest. And the youngest by far. So it was incredible. It was really, really incredible. And I'm very thankful for my journey. Well, I want to be so mindful of your time, but I could ask you actually 1,000 questions. The last question we typically end on is just what's your one piece of advice for 20-somethings? You said trust your journey. Is there anything else quickly that comes to mind? I think it's okay to change your mind. Don't be committed to what you thought you wanted at 23. And then it's okay to be someone else at 26. And it's okay to be someone else at 30 and then 33. To me, I think by trusting your journey and and being okay with changing your mind, it's okay. But remember to be respectful along the way, right? Always hustle, always show up, give your best. But just know that the best is yet to come. You're going to experience some of the most incredible highs and lows. But that's what makes the human journey just impactful, right? And so as long as you can just find your way at some point, there's no way that we all know the answer today. So it's okay to change your mind. Please trust your journey and and just give yourself a little bit of grace. Kindness goes a long way, even to yourself. So I think a lot of us aren't told that in our journeys. And I hope that more people will get to do that earlier in their life. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you, Yaz. I appreciate you. This was so awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Dear 20-something. If you enjoyed it, you can give us a follow over at Dear 20-something on Instagram or subscribe here or anywhere you get podcasts.